Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we have journeyed from our Advent theme of the coming of the Messiah into our Lenten theme, the arrival of the Messiah. And here we are focusing not on the Old Testament messianic titles from Isaiah as we did back in Advent before Christmas, but now we're focusing on the New Testament messianic titles. And last week we did Son of God, and this week we're going to do Lamb of God. And the reason that we do this is because we are enough removed as Christians from our Judaic spiritual past, and even more so from the past of the ancient Israelites, that sometimes we lose some of the nuances of the title Lamb of God. So we're going to have to go back. We're going to have to go back pretty far. In fact, we'll probably have to go back to at least Exodus to start to wrap our minds around what it is that John the Baptist is talking about. In today's text, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming again. In this period, he's already baptized Jesus, and he is testifying that he witnessed the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and stay remaining with Jesus. And so that was the signal to John that this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God, or as he says, the Lamb of God. This is the one who takes away the sins of the world. Now, John was talking to Jews, that's who was coming to be baptized by him in the River Jordan. And so using the term Lamb of God would have clicked their minds over into something very particular. If we go back to the Messianic, the Messianic, sorry, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant at Mount Sinai that Moses and the Israelites entered into after they had been liberated from 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt, we find that very quickly, after they get the covenant, they get how to correct things. Not if, but when they go wrong. And that would be the entire book of Exodus. The Exodus, Leviticus. I don't know what is going on with me today. Leviticus. So if you haven't had a chance, because I know how some people feel about Leviticus, right? People are like, it's long. I don't understand it. It's really strange. I can understand that. When I first began my Bible study, oh my gosh, it was probably at least six years ago here on Thursday nights, we started in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, and we were reading through Genesis, and we got to the end of Genesis, and I said, you know, where do you want to go from here? And it was pretty unanimous, let's keep going. So we got through Exodus, and that was pretty exciting. There's a lot of great stuff happening in Exodus. It's pretty cool to see God go against Pharaoh and win and liberate God's people. That's very exciting. And then we get this covenant at Mount Sinai. That's really interesting. And then we get to the end of Exodus, and there is the page starting Leviticus. And I said again, where do you want to go? And now we were not so unanimous. You had a few people that were like, let's keep going, Leviticus. And you had other people that were like, eh, there's got to be somewhere else to go. And I understand that. Leviticus has a bad reputation. It can be overwhelming, especially if you don't have any background in this. And frankly, some of it's just weird, 
right? There's just some weirdness happening in Leviticus. And so I did what you are never supposed to do, what I tell people never to do. I opened up to Leviticus and randomly started to read. And I randomly started to read this. When a man has a nocturnal emission, and I stopped. And they went, what? I thought you didn't want to read Leviticus, right? And then I said, okay, let's try it again. Who wants to read Leviticus? Unanimous, we're reading Leviticus. That's in there? How does that end? What do we do with that, right? And of course, we're gonna read through it. We're gonna find out what to do with that because Leviticus is all about a self-help book. It is all about how to fix things when they go wrong. And what you discover is a lot of times what goes wrong in Leviticus is relational. We do things that hurt our relationships. We take our neighbor's donkey. We accidentally do something that hurts a neighbor. We do these things, and so therefore we need to get right, not just with a neighbor, but with God. And so Leviticus is a step-by-step -step manual of how to fix things. How to fix things. So if you're a person that never reads instructions, I understand why you don't want to read Leviticus. But if you are a person that would like to know what you do when your axe head flies off your, your axe and accidentally kills your neighbor, then Leviticus is for you. That's a perfect, it's actually in there. And you go, that's a really specific case study. Because you know that happened. That somebody was out there chopping wood and then all of a sudden the axe head flew off and killed somebody because of course that's where a flying axe head's gonna go, right into somebody else. And somebody was like, how do I fix this? I didn't mean to kill anybody. I didn't mean to hurt anybody. I was out here chopping wood. And then all of a sudden this happened. And Leviticus helps walk through. Now, one of the things that is very apparent is that you're dealing with the problem both physically, you know, you're probably gonna have to make some reparations here, but you're also dealing with it theologically and spiritually because the ancient Israelites believed that sin is a pollutant, that it actually taints the world and the air that we breathe. It taints the community, it, it taints the person. And even more so, that sins that happen within the community pollute the altar in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and in the temple, and that it kind of like sticks to it. Like it, it goes in there. And of course, God has a severe allergy to sin. And so you have to figure out how to cleanse that sin out of there. Now, unfortunately for us, bleach was not a thing. And so they couldn't do that. Having grown up with a mother who was a registered nurse, she believed that until she smelled bleach, it wasn't clean. So you could tell her you cleaned the bathroom, but if she walked in and went, no, you didn't. I cleaned it. Windex is not sufficient. You will need to go back and use bleach. And then once that holy aroma of bleach hit the house, then she was like, okay, you're good. But until then, it wasn't clean. Well, here's the same thing. How do you really clean and cleanse an environment and things that are tainted by sin. How do you do that? Unfortunately for us, it is where life is stored. It is in the blood. You do that with the blood. Now, God doesn't ask you to come and prick your finger and use your, first of all, most of our sins would be much more than a finger prick. But God says, here's how you can do that. And Leviticus will walk you through depending on the level of sin and the brokenness and the evil that is brought forth from that sin is the animal that you will sacrifice. And it can be as simple as a dove or a pair of doves. It can go all the way up to an oxen. That's pretty bad. <laughs> if you get up to an oxen, that's a major animal, right? Most of the time, it was a lamb 
or a goat kid. Most of the time, that's what people were asked to sacrifice because a lot of these people were shepherds and they had a lot more of that. It's a lot easier to come up with this than some animal that you don't keep around. And so a lot of times you'll find reference to you will take a lamb or a kid without blemish, that is, it's firstborn, and you will bring that to the priest. And then what happens is you bring your animal because you have read the covenant and you know what you're supposed to do and you bring your animal and you present it before the priest. And in the moment that you are turning the animal over to the priest, you are laying hands on the animal. You are putting your sin, your guilt, and you are transferring it to the animal. That's what's happening. And then the animal comes to the priest who then will take that animal and then goes through the ritual way that you slaughter an animal for sacrifice. First, you will drain it of its blood and you will collect that blood and then you will butcher the animal and the fat portions you will burn on a very specific altar and then you will take the rest of the meat that is good and that will feed the priests and their families it will, and any extras will also feed those who are going hungry in the community. But then you will take the blood and you will dash it on the altar, which for most of us is a very grotesque image that you would cover the altar in blood. Now, this isn't an altar that most people are looking at, by the way. This is kind of tucked away. But this is also one of the reasons why it's good to burn a lot of incense in biblical worship. Because if you've ever been in a slaughterhouse or you've been in a butcher shop, you know that blood starts to get a really particular smell. Or if you've ever dr driven on the eastern shore past all of those poultry processing plants, you'll know that there's a very particular smell to that. And most of us don't go, mmm, would you like fried chicken for dinner? It's a very specific smell, and most of us are kind of put off and turned off by that smell. And so in Scripture, they would use things to kind of cover that, right? You do it with a little bit of barbecue, because that always covers a little bit of that smell, and then you do the rest with incense, and then hopefully we can all tolerate being here. Not to mention that those things smell a lot better than human sin. A lot better. And so here we have this option of if you want to be reconciled, that you can bring an animal, you can transfer your sin and your guilt to it, the animal can be offered, and then the lifeblood of that animal will now cleanse the space so that God can stay with us. God wants to be with us, but it gets to be too much, right? My son has turned 13, and that's a really particular special time in the life of young men as they become teenagers, right? And they also are going through puberty, and they're starting to discover that all kinds of things are changing about them, including their aroma. And my son started going to work out at the ACAC gym, which is a great thing. I love that. That's really nice. Good habits start early. Uh, but he was coming home, and he would come in, and I'd be like, whoa, have you taken a shower? No. I was going to do that tomorrow morning. Oh, no, no. We're not going to make it through the night. No, no, we're going to do that now, right? You got you to get that out of there because otherwise it just like infiltrates your sinuses. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and you have to tend to these things, right? It's a very pungent aroma. It's like when it's been wet outside and you let your dog out and they come in and there's no other way to put that, but they smell really doggy, right? You're like, I love you, but you got to air out. Oh, my gosh. Right? I love you, but this, this, is, this is a bit much. But you want, you love the dog. I love my son. I want to be 
in their proximity. I want to be in relationship with them, but oh, that aroma is bad, right? (laughs) Got to fix that. That's what's happening in the sacrificial system. Our sin is creating an aroma that is so toxic to God, God can't stand it. It's bad. And God's like, I want to be with you all, but we got to clean you. You've got to be cleansed. Your sin is sticking to you, and it's sticking to my altar, and I can't be in your presence. It's too strong. And this goes even further back in the minds of our Judaic siblings in Christ to the Passover itself. So if you go back and you read Exodus, not if you watch the Ten Commandments, it's not biblically accurate. I know it's really fun, but it's not biblically accurate. Uh, It's really hard to tell people that Moses had a speech impediment, probably had a stutter, and then you watch Charlton Heston. And you're like, I mean, he's great. He's Charlton Heston. But still, that's not really accurate, right? But I will tell you, if you haven't watched the Ten Commandments, Yul Brynner makes it all worth it. Just go watch Yul Brynner. It'll be worth it. But if you watch it, there is a scene that is kind of helpful to visualize what I'm about to talk about. So in the course of the plagues, think of it as multiple rounds of heavyweight boxing. In one corner, you have Yahweh. God the Father, the God of the Israelites, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God that you have. And in the other corner, you have a very heavyweight. You have Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh, we know as a human being, but ancient ancient Egypt did not consider Pharaoh to be a human being. Once you were crowned and you became the Pharaoh, you became divine. So Pharaoh doesn't even think of Pharaoh as one of us anymore. Pharaoh and all the pantheon, now they're united in being deified. And so when Pharaoh is talking to our God, Pharaoh thinks that they're equal. And God's like, oh, you want to play? Okay. And so they do. They start having these rounds. Each plague is a different round. And in the first round, you throw the gauntlet down, you know, can you turn the blood, the Nile into blood? Yes. Pharaoh's magicians keep up for the first couple of rounds, but then they can't. They can't keep up anymore, and they're like, this is too much, especially when you start putting boils on people and animals. Usually most people are like, I wouldn't even want to do that. Why would you want to do that? But God's like, no, we're going to keep going because Pharaoh won't give in. He won't surrender the fight, and so we get all the way to the 10th plague, and it's then that God says, all right, this is it. I'm done this is going to be the knockout round. And in this round, I am going to do something that Pharaoh cannot deny. He says, my spirit will come through Egypt and will kill the firstborn. But in order to protect my people, I need you to mark yourselves. This will predate the mark of the Mosaic Covenant, the the covenant at Mount Sinai, which is circumcision. This one is a sign on your house. Again, God says, take a lamb and drain its blood, and instead of dashing it on an altar, because they don't have that yet, you will paint your doorframe, the lentil of your door, you will paint it. You will paint it red, and when I come through, I will see that, and I will know that you live here, and I will pass over that house, and I will not strike down the firstborn, but I will strike down the firstborn of Egypt. And so the blood of the lamb was to mark God's people 
that they might not perish. That was the first time that it was used for that. And then in Leviticus, it becomes used to purify and to cleanse and allow people to start again with a clean slate. And so this is exactly how the sacrificial system was working. And it was working, but it was working overtime. You could run through every animal on the planet and still not eradicate human sin. And that was the problem. The more that people procreate, the more that people integrate, the more that people communicate, the more they sin. And they start to tear and rend their relationships. They start to create sin and evil in the world. And so God said, there is not enough animals to cover this. But God loves us too much to abandon us. So God says, I will offer the perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice that is so perfect that it will cover all humankind, those who are here now and those who have yet to be. All of us will be covered by the grace of this offering. And so it is that we get the incarnation, God the Son. We get God in human form in Jesus of Nazareth. We get the baptism as a sign to those who are looking for the Messiah to bring God's people back in perfect reconciliation. John baptizing for the forgiveness of sins with water. But then Jesus comes and the Holy Spirit descends. And John will testify, he will baptize you with the fire of the Holy Spirit. That will be the completion of this moment. And so John the Baptist is letting the people know, this is the one, this is the lamb that we have been waiting for. His sacrifice is not only sufficient, it is perfection. And then if you pay attention to the rites of the church, especially how we are recounting Holy Week, Holy Thursday, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, what you'll find is that you are undergirding the title Lamb of God, because one of the things that happens after Jesus institutes Holy Communion is that Jesus starts telling his apostles that I must be emptied for you. And so when he's turned over to Pilate and Pilate decides to go forth and carry out the death penalty that is placed on Jesus, the first thing he does is turn Jesus over to some of his soldiers that he might be scourged whipped and he is bleeding but it doesn't stop there then they give him the cross beam to the cross and they tell him to carry it out of the governor's palace and outside the city and up to the hill of Golgotha Calvary told them to go there and there he is nailed to the cross and he continues to bleed for hours bleeding and then comes the hour when the soldiers who are guarding the crucified would come and would break their knees so that they would complete the death and they would strangle by the weight of their own chest. But instead, they get to Jesus and he's already dead, but they need to make sure. And so they stab him in the side with one of their spears. And what comes out? Water. Because the blood is gone. All of his blood is gone. Emptied out completely for us. Now this seems morbid, just like if I take young children and I start to sing Fountain Filled with Blood, they're like, ooh. But it is, because our sin is morbid. Our guilt is an affront. And so it is, it is a right and just thing that we feel this revulsion to the fact that blood has to cleanse us. 
Now, the other side of Levitical law is that it was trying to keep things where they belong. They're really OCD about where things belong. And blood belongs on the inside. That's where it belongs. If blood's on the outside, something's wrong. Something shouldn't ha that shouldn't happen. And so when you are willing to take blood from inside and bring it outside, it should be only for the purification. That's what it's for. And so you have this groundwork laid throughout the Old Testament about the Lamb of God, that this will be the perfect sacrifice. And then Jesus sets us up for this in the institution of Holy Communion the night before he dies. He gathers at the Passover Seder, the Passover where they're remembering that the Paschal Lamb's blood marked their door so that God would pass over and not strike them down. Here, in the midst of this, Jesus says, I will transform this. This bread is my body. And I am giving it to you. I am giving myself to you. Then he takes his cup, and it is filled with red wine because that was part of the Paschal Seder. And so here he says, this blood in this cup is the blood of the new covenant. This cup is being poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I want you to do this as often as you need to in remembrance of me. Now, across denominations, people have different ideas of what communion means. In fact, I just spent another um, almost full week with the Board of Ordained Ministry interviewing people who were trying to move into the last phase before ordination. They were trying to become provisional elders and deacons, and so they were trying to enter into that holy three-year probationary period. And as they were trying to do that, they were having to articulate the theology of what is happening at this table. They had to articulate it in such a way so that we knew that they were Methodist. It's not, there's nothing wrong with being un-Methodist, being some other denomination, but if you're going to officiate the table, it's a good idea to know what's happening over there. And so we would ask them questions and they would share their theology. How is it that Jesus is our Lord and Savior? How is it that that is happening? And then the ones that have really internalized that theology and they have appreciated the meaning of the sacrament, they will be able to combine the two to say that in the giving of the bread and the cup, we are reminded that Christ was the Lamb of God who poured out of himself that we might be saved. And here's the good news, my siblings in Christ. You no longer have to go and bring a lamb. And in fact, for most of us, this would be very problematic because the only animals we tend to keep are our beloved pets. So instead of having to bring an animal that we treasure, some of us as much or more so than our children, instead, we have the opportunity to be cleansed by an offering that was perfect. And all God says is if you want that grace, that forgiveness, that salvation, all you have to do is receive it. That's all you have to do. You don't have to bring a new sacrifice. You don't have to earn it because you can't. It is a gift. That is what grace is, God's unmerited favor for us. You just have to receive. In fact, our book of worship in the United Methodist Church tells us that I am not to allow you to come up and tear off a piece of your own bread. Why? Because then you are taking and you are supposed to be receiving. And so I give it to you so that you may receive. 
every nuance of the sacrament is reinforcing that God's grace is given to you as often as you will, as often as you want it, as often as you need it, that you can have this sacrament. And it was so important that John Wesley, one of the founders of what is now Methodism, one of the founders from Oxford, England, who himself was an ordained Anglican priest in the Church of England, was willing to risk everything that you might have this. Everything. Because right about the 1700s, when the American colonies were rebelling against the sovereign monarch of England, the monarch said, fine, I will withdraw your salvation, and pulled all the Anglican priests back to England. And John Wesley, knowing this, wrestled with the fact that there were people here in what would become America who no longer had access to this grace. And he couldn't stand it. He put himself on the line. He could have been declared a heretic. He could have been defrocked and lost his ordination. He could have been totally strung up and lynched as a heretic and he would have martyred himself for people he would never know or see this side of the kingdom of God. But he did it because he knew that this changes everything. That the grace of the communion table is yours. It is as close to that moment when Jesus died on the cross for us that we can get. It's as close. Because we remember his body, we remember the blood of the lamb. We remember that it is given to us. That is why in the United Methodist tradition, we practice what is called open table, which means that it is available to anybody. The liturgy that we will recite says, Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. If that is your desire, if you want to encounter Jesus Christ, then you are welcome here. And I don't have to pull up your membership rolls. I don't have to verify your baptism. I don't have to go, were you at confession? Did you confess? I don't have to do that. Because if you want this grace, then it is just my honor to serve it to you. Myself and those who will serve you. That's what it's about. And people can get in all kinds of conversations about what's happening up here. Is it being transubstantiated? Is it consubstantiation? Is it simply memorialism known as wingliism? What is happening at the table? What is going on there? And people can get all caught up in some of the things like, I would rather have the little cups, or I would rather have um, a different type of bread, right? People can get all caught up in all kinds of different things. But the point of Holy Communion is that at a level with which words are insufficient, your vessel, your earthly body, your being will know what is happening here. Because when your body gets bread, your body says, ah, this is sustenance. When your body tastes the grape juice, your body goes, ah, this is sustenance. And somehow, through God's grace and the movement of the Holy Spirit, and probably aided by all of the learning that we do along our lives as Christians, your being and the depths of your spirit recognize that that is the taste of grace. That that's what you're getting. And long after your body metabolizes that piece of bread and that grape juice, God's grace will remain. Because in every single human being, 
whether you are baptized and have received a portion of God's self in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or you have received just the image of God in your creation, that spark of the divine, every single person has a connection to God. And when you take communion, you are fueling that. You are setting it free. You are purifying yourself from the inside out that you would no longer become a polluted temple, but that your body and your being would become a temple where God reigns and that is what is happening at communion and that is what John is referencing when he says Lamb of God and Lamb of God is talking about the purifying grace of the cross that we receive again and again in communion and that is just something that we have to appreciate that God is giving it to us now John Wesley couldn't stand the thought that people for the rest of their lives and some people for all of their lives wouldn't have access to that. Couldn't stand it. And he didn't want to do it, and he wrote about how he regretted doing it, but he did it. He took the authority under which he was ordained, and he laid his hands on Francis Asbury and Thomas Koch, and he sent them to the colonies who were in rebellion, and he sent them forth, and they went from community, community, not just preaching and teaching, but officiating Holy Communion. Because this matters. It matters. And perhaps that is one of the things that is most appreciated in Methodism, is that this is for any, for children, it is for those that do not speak the common language of the congregation, it is for those who may come from a different denominational background or a different religious background altogether. If you want it, it is yours. And when your body receives it, your body at a molecular level recognizes that this is life. This is what will keep us going. And through the liturgy and the prayers and being in the presence of God and one another and the movement of the Holy Spirit in us and between us, our spirits come to recognize this isn't just life this is new life. This is a chance to start again. We are forgiven, loved, and freed, and we can try again without fear. And in a world that is filled with such fear and anxiety right now, to be liberated from that, even if it's only for a moment in worship, is truly a divine gift. And that's what we receive. That assurance that in that moment, you are forgiven. John Wesley spent a lot of his life trying to grab and hold on to that assurance. And his writings say, today he found it. But two days later, it had slipped through his fingers. But do you know where he found it without fail every single time? At the communion table. He found it at the table. And yes, today we will take communion. You'll have the opportunity to receive it if you would so like. And it will not be perfect. There will be people that will go, I think the bread could have been a little sweeter or it could have been a little more solid. Or you know, There are all kinds of reasons why the communion will not be perfect. But I promise you this, you are foreshadowing for your being the day when you enter into the kingdom to come and you get a new spiritual body that will be impervious to sickness and sin and death and mourning and crying. That body will recognize what is being offered to you by Christ himself 
and we feast at his heavenly table. Your body will go, ah, this is home. And that's what we receive. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we worship and adore. Amen.